Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi, welcome back to the Neshamas podcast. Today we have the honor of speaking with Yitzi Rabinowitz. He grew up in Bar Park, Brooklyn, and recently got married, Mazel Tov, and currently lives in Crown Heights. He's here to share his journey of healing and recovery from codependence and addiction. Welcome, and thank you, Yitzi. Thank you, Maish. You're very welcome. Different than the other podcasts, I thought it would be great to jump right in, and that's why my first question would be if you can describe to us what were the last three months or the last 90 days before recovery began? And then what were the first three months of recovery? Okay, thanks. That's a very interesting uh, question. It's literally like a trip for me to go back down that road. And I'm like, well, that's a great place to start. Just get right in. And like part of my addiction is sex addiction and acting out with other people as well as online pornography. And for the most part, my last three months consisted of meeting up with random people off the internet, usually Jewish people for the most part, by finding them. And uh, being and being in my dira, my apartment in Israel, waking up maybe 2, 3 p.m. every day, going to sleep like 4 or 5 a.m., sometimes later, closer to 8 a.m. Had a weird sleep schedule and like, obviously, and during the whole night I was busy going around town or uh, sitting watching pornography or chatting with people online and all that kind of stuff. And it was literally a shadow of my existence in regard to that. In regard to codependence, actually, the, the awareness for that fully came much later in the journey. But uh, I could give some snippets of some ideas of what it looked like then. It was like getting everyone to... Uh, I had no, no boundaries or respect for anyone. And was very pushy, very like greedy in a way. And would ask my apartments all the time, my roommates for, for food, even though I was perfectly capable of affording getting it myself and stuff like that. And I had this like close friend that I spoke with. Like I would hound him on the phone all the time. That was part of my like no boundaries clause in that way. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much uh, the person that started seeking help. I had a crazy story, actually. Someone online like motivated me. And with money and whatever, he saw like an opportunity to like help save someone from their own craziness because he saw I was going down the rabbit hole and I was a good bacher, good learning and everything. And he was going to try to help me. And he did. And he gave me part of the money and I paid him back about half the money because he made a certain deal with me that I barely kept for two days and he had already given me part of the money. What so, does it mean that he gave you money for what? He gave me money. The deal was no movies, no talking to girls, no to get rid of my smartphone. It was a two-month deal. If I do it for two months, he felt that I would be weaned off enough. And needless to say, as an addict with uh, no, no ability on my own to do any of that for even a minute, within two days, I'd already, I'd already broken that. Not only that, I'd been honest with him and given him all my passwords and everything. So he caught me. But I still lied about it because I don't know how to, I don't know when it comes to my addiction, I'll lie, cheat and steal my way through anything and anyone to get there. So uh, that was all probably around the, probably I would say 30, not 30, 60, 70 days before. That's where like I started realizing I had a problem and I want to get help. And then like about 90, I would say 70 to 90 days later is when I probably actually like first like started really actively seeking help. Mm -hmm. Aside for that time, that that time with the deal that you did with that person, was there any other times that you tried to stop? Many times starting like immediately, like every time I would like, I would act out of my addiction and watch pornography, masturbation, all that. I'd feel very guilty and like 
every couple of months, I'd really want to stop. And, and I couldn't. And my, I, at one point I went to a rabbi, I was maybe 16, 17, but I remember, I remember telling someone that if I were to have like later on, if I would have a therapist like to help me out, I would need someone that'll be head on and not someone who's going to beat around the bush like this rabbi who was barely able to mention the word pornography or anything. So of course, not that it's his fault, but he, he definitely didn't help me in like getting rid of something so shameful. Of course, if you're going to hide it a bit more, it's going to, it's going to make it that more challenging, that much more challenging to actually combat it. And I definitely, although I tried being honest with him, I, I, I wasn't able to because I didn't feel safe and or comfortable. Mm -hmm. So on that note, this is very upfront, but like, why are you, what makes you be willing to share with us your story? Because thank God I've, I've uh, gotten to, I've gotten to a place in my life where these things really like I have to deal with certain things on a daily basis and I do certain things on a daily basis to stay where I am and to grow and all that. But it doesn't hit me in the face every day. That's the miracle of it. And I want to be able to give hope to someone who's still struggling, who maybe is still watching pornography or still stuck with codependence with a real tight relationship with their mother or father or siblings or even husband or wife or something like that, anyone or friend and be able to help them because my I feel like a big part of my of my mission, my life mission as it's unfolding for me these days is about really helping others who, who have been through similar experiences than I am. I'll just throw this quick thing in. Just last week, I started chatting with someone. We're becoming friends. I'm going to see how I'm able to help him. Someone sent someone to me who's heavy codependent, who has this really codependent relationship with his best friend, but doesn't necessarily spill into his relationship with his wife or his parents or anything like that. And uh, it's just like totally driving him insane. And that's what caused them to get help just from one. The main idea was that he, uh, this relationship with his best friend brought him to his knees and that he, d he doesn't know how to get out of it. And he's always obsessed with this guy, even if he blocks him and asks him, he needs space and all that. And it's just, uh, that's literally like what I went through when I'm talking about codependence, as you'll hear hopefully a bit more as we go here. Yeah, I would like to hear a little bit more if you can give a little bit more details because you were saying that you would ask people for food, your roommates for food, even though you didn't really need it, you were capable of doing it yourself. Can you give a little bit more background? What is your experience as to, if I were to ask you curiously, like why did you need to ask them for food? I needed to ask them for food. Partially was a, was a greed thing. And I sometimes even notice it today. It's like, I had it a couple of months ago. I was in Uber and I asked the driver for water and I had one. I'm like, why are you asking for water? And then I like stopped myself. I said, never mind. And I think I took my water or whatever, but like, I still have that in me. It could be, it was a childhood neglect thing. It could be, it was just being greedy and like selfish and thinking all about myself. Definitely in those uh, last few months, I was definitely very much consumed with me. And everyone else who was in the way was bound to just get hurt in whichever way kind of worked out. It wasn't like I was trying to actively hurt anyone, but like the, the idea basically was that I needed this food and you have it and I'm too lazy to go to the grocery or whatever. Or was, it, was it that you were too lazy or it was you couldn't help yourself? Like, could, did you watch yourself ask, just like you, did, you said the other day, right? You're watching yourself asking for the water, but the difference is today you have the actual choice to say oh actually i don't need that thank you very much was it back in the day you just seriously just couldn't help yourself from asking people for things and you were aware of it yes couldn't help yourself yes that yeah thanks for bringing that up that's actually correct i feel like i definitely didn't didn't have any tools and whatever just came to mind whatever that was i just did it that was my addiction that was my life that was my codependence and that's like the lack of boundaries that like, I don't have any, I don't really have a, I, I have a simple, like a begrudging respect, I would say for what's yours, but not really because I actually respect you and your boundaries. Cause I don't know how to do that. I've never been taught how to do that. So I don't know how to respect you or your boundaries, but I'll begrudgingly say if it's yours, most times I'll be okay with it. But, mo but a lot of times I'll manipulate and lie, cheat and steal to get my way, even if it's yours. I'll get you to manipulate it so that you feel so guilty to give it to me. 
Can we rewind a little bit and tell me, if you can, what are your earliest memories of being codependent or codependent behaviors? Okay, so my earliest, I would say, my earliest memories would be like like liking drama in a way and liking like getting into fights as early as probably second and third grade. Can you give me an example? Examples. I am a very... I've been blessed with a really quick mind and a re- like really witty attitude and like a sense of humor and all that. And I used it a lot to like just annoy people because I needed the attention. I needed the drama in my life. I needed, my life was very chaotic as we will get to a little bit soon, but I needed the validation of even just people noticing me and looking at me and just that I existed. Are you open to sharing more around that? Sure. I basically... It start, I would say it starts with being in a big dysfunctional loving family and my parents are divorced. My parents got divorced when I was nine. They got separated when I was seven. My father, based on his mental illness and addiction, basically my mother got full custody and my father would see us on weekends and we'd go out for Shabbos. We'd go out for lunch and dinner here and there. So we had a relationship with him, but he really wasn't like he did his absolute best, but he couldn't. And my parents definitely had their issues that came from their parents and like generational trauma and stuff like that. And the basic idea is I grew up with all with in a very unsafe environment, felt sometimes neglected. Didn't necessarily feel, I wouldn't say what I felt growing up was love, although I felt very cared for and very taken care of, but I felt very abandoned and very lost in the world. And it actually reminds me of, and I was in Israel and like at some point, like probably a year and a half, within the year before I like got into getting some healing and some help, I'd been sent through my mother, Marisha Shiva, to a to like a lay therapist, who was like a really good community fellow, really warm guy. And I've kept up with him even till more recently. He's helped me a lot in, in the past. Like now, like he's like just behind the scenes and I keep up with him. But the basic idea was he he did a whole bunch of different things with me. He brought me to a to someone to do like blot tests and Rorschach tests, and I he, he literally the guy literally basically described my life. This is in 2014. Described my life as based on from my point of view, like I will technically possibly be open to change, but I won't really be because I can't see it any other way different. And there's a lot of like trauma and attachment disorder. I think he used the term or something like that. And it was a lot of that, like going throughout from, I would say that young age, all the way up till I started getting healing. None of that ever really changed. My experience with life continued in the same trajectory, so to speak. And I never really dealt with any of that on a real level. The most I ever got any help was my brother passed away and uh, an organization paid for therapy visits when I was about 12, 13, for about a year and a half, I got some therapy in regarding to dealing with my brother's death, which was helpful at the time. But other than that, like everything else about my life and my feelings were all closed in. And I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had anyone that I trusted enough to tell this to. So what, when you say going, you're talking about going back from when you're seven or from even before seven? Before seven, I don't know. My house wasn't like, thank God it wasn't like a fighting, like my parents got divorced, but it wasn't a, it was amicable. Mm-hmm. My father had his rage issues and different things, but it was basically an amicable divorce. It wasn't a lot of people like backstabbing each other and hurting each other. And we didn't have any like fist fights and stuff in the house. Thank God. And, and so I didn't have any of that, but I like, I, and I do have a lot of positive memories from even really young and my father going off to learn in a night call, but um, like reading me a quick story before bedtime and I'd, Look forward to that. There was a lot, there were a lot of positive memories. And as I'm growing in this healing journey, more and more of these positive memories are coming up in my mind. Mm. And it's cool to be able to not focus so much on the negative, although there, there was plenty of that, but to focus more on the positive of what I could take out of my childhood. Right. So my question is like, in regards to all the things that were t- quote unquote bottled up, what were those things? Were they like feelings of neglect, feelings of not being seen? And uh, feelings of, of fear. What was yeah. the general, what was the general, I guess, fear or anxiety? Yeah. So it was a couple of things. The first like chip on my shoulder was, I, I like I mentioned before, I got bullied. I put myself in a, in like a position to get bullied. That doesn't mean that bullying is ever right. But when I look back, when I could take responsibility for the part that I played in 
putting people over the edge is I needed the attention. So there were a lot of different facets to the like dysfunction here. So like when my father left, my mother a lot of times didn't know what to do with me. I was like bouncing off the walls and everything. So she threatened that I would go live with my father or stay by him for a night and then maybe I'll behave. And because I was acting up a lot, I, I was bursting at the seams. Yeah, right. So what ways were you acting out? I was acting up. I was I was a difficult child. I was very wild, very unruly, didn't listen. I tried my best to listen, but a lot of times feelings and stuff got a hold of me and like I was mad or upset and didn't feel heard and didn't feel safe. And my mother was very rigid. She was loving and tried her best, but she was very rigid with the way she brought us up and right on and, her uh, own trying to Yeah. I don't blame her. She had a real difficult uh, time. Forget about like her childhood stuff that she brought in probably, but you know, the stuff of trying to raise, um, I'm one of 10 children. So to raise a whole family like that is not easy. And yeah, the bottom line was there was a lot of, there was a lot of that, a lot of emotional abuse in that way. There was some physical abuse, but I wouldn't say that would be the main, it was more like emotional and psychological abuse. That was the, trying the, to get the, you to behave the brunt. The, yeah. Yes. The brunt of the abuse in family while in school, I got the physical abuse. So I, I got that piece taken care of as well. How did you cope? Did you have any coping mechanisms? So, like I said, my coping mechanisms when I was younger, I don't know specifically what my coping, I don't know if I had any coping mechanisms other than maybe the codependent behaviors and the acting out, the acting up in like a lot of different ways. Any friends? I definitely was, I definitely was a friendly, lovable guy. Like I feel like I was able to connect with people. I had friends and we lived in a building with a bunch of other from people. And we had a lot, I had, uh, had a bunch of friends, the children, the people above me, below me, buildings on the sides and as well as in school, as well as in shul and all that stuff. And I'll just throw in this plug for my mother. Cause she really liked to to show like she really tried, like there was a time where it was hard for me to go my to go to shul where everyone else has their father and I didn't. And my mother wanted I should have that experience. So she arranged that someone in shul would be like my stand-in father, so to speak, for Shabbos. And he was a really warm fellow and everything. And I felt a lot better um, going to shul when I had this fellow there. Mm. And like she really tried to make my experience of life as, as much as possible because she really cared. She really did her best. But she only knows how to love so much. Like when it comes to other things, she doesn't know what, it, what love means. What did, how did codependency play itself out as you started getting older? So it played itself out as I was getting older. It was a lot of, I would do things like in regard to learning, davening and stuff like that. I would do things again for the attention seeking piece. And it was all about like how others would see me. And a lot of times like. The only thing that would really keep me to like really be like steadfast in in my studies and my davening, etc., would be the fact that uh, that others see me a certain way. So, where does the line get drawn? Where do you draw the line in between codependency and people who care what other people think of them? Because so, that's super common. Yes, that's a good question. I mean, today I would say from today's perspective, the idea is to be myself fully without affecting other people. That's really what it's about. If I don't affect other people, I could walk around in, in for example, I could walk around in shorts and a t-shirt when it's 30 below. And maybe some people look at me as crazy, but I'm not really going to affect anyone. However, if I start doing things that directly affect other people, that's really where I would say the line I would draw today. Like I'm allowed to be myself and there are no real, I like saying that there are no rules like I don't live life by any rules. The only rules I live by are the decisions I make in my head on a daily basis to be the, to be a better person than I was the day before. And that's the only rule I, the only rules I try to live by, but to know that I take full responsibility for those rules and I make them in my own head. Where does porn and sex addiction begin? So that begins around 12, 12 and a half. And my first, my first like addiction therapist brought up a very good point. That when I was that young, I didn't remember exactly when it was. And it was around the time my brother passed away when I was like 12 and a half. So he kind of theorized that the timing of when he says, usually when a young man discovers that, that whole area, they, they usually remember it really well. 
I remember it well. I just do not remember what exact when exactly the whole chronology of events, so to speak, happened. Like how it played itself out. Like exactly what time was between ages twelve and thirteen. I know that at twelve, I probably wasn't with that, and at thirteen, I was already like full on porn masturbation every day. So somewhere in the middle it happened, but I, there was so much pain in my life that my mind like snapped shut as to remember exactly when it was. Mm -hmm. Did or how did you learn? about anything that has to do with sex. So I was in a shul and in the bathroom, someone put a magazine of like women's lingerie in the wall. And I started with that and I knew instantly. How did you know it was there? I was randomly looking for, I don't know why, I was sitting in the bathroom one day and I saw the hole in the wall and I was a curious little kid and I picked it up and I first spat at it because it's evil and disgusting and vile. And then a minute later, I picked it up and started imagining, fantasizing about the people in them. And how did that progress? So in very brief, what happened was it progressed to me going around the neighborhood first to all the convenience stores and getting kicked out of a couple of them just sitting around doing nothing because I would sit for out for like literally hours looking through these magazines, try to find something more, knowing there's more, but not knowing how to get to it. And just even within the realm of those magazines, just every image was more. And I needed the more, I needed the more, more fix and more and more. And eventually... Someone like kind of saved me all the trouble and showed me my first like pornographic image. And that's where that, that's how that took off. At any point, did you have a desire to speak to someone about it? At that point, not at all. I would have never considered it at all at like age 12, 13 to bring it up to anyone. Like it's not a problem. It was like the best thing in my life. It was like yeah, anytime. On, on, on one hand, you spit at it. And on the other hand, you're doing it. There, was there no, no shame? There was shame even from the beginning. And the first time I saw the first image, I just, I still remember it vividly to this day. And like the feelings that went through my mind was like, I felt high as a kite, as like some people would describe like being almost high on a drug. And at the same time, I also felt like these people were doing the most, the most depraved act in the world. That's the way I, the way I viewed reality. The way I reviewed my reality, I would say. And so I took it home and I hid it and all that. But for the most part, like for the first while, it didn't even register that it was necessarily a bad thing, although it did. But it didn't really register until maybe a year later where I started feeling I might have had enough of it and it was getting more more compulsive. What, did it start getting into the way of things? I mean, if you're spending, you said hours in a convenience store. What did it get in the way of? Did it get in the way of coming home from school? Yeah. So I kind of had certain leeways. I was out with, a, I would learn with a tutor for certain things. Although I was bright and whatever, I needed a little more help. I needed someone to study with me certain things. So I would have a tutor who would sit in a shul and learn certain things. And it was more also a mentor than a tutor. He sometimes actually remarked to me that I really don't like, I'm really so smart. I don't need a tutor, which was true. I needed more of a mentor, like a father figure to look up to. Like my mother, again spent hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars over those couple of years. And um, the point is, so I had a lot of leeway. I went there, I went to Davin, I stayed out to learn. So I had a lot of leeway as to when I came home from Yeshiva, went to supper, then would go out and meet up with this guy and then hang out for more. I had like more leeway with stuff. And mm -hmm. since my mother was running a whole household, so as long as she knew more or less where, where I was, like there were no questions asked. It was very easy to get in and out of the house and I'm remembering even a little later, once I started going to convenience stores to buy the pornography, like the magazines, as it started with, I would just go and I would sneak out at 11 o'clock at night. And no, one, no one would care to ask where I'm going, what I'm doing, because there was no accountability in my house. There was no, there was no like, there were rules, but there was no like real accountability as to where everyone is at any given time. And you and didn't have an issue being that young? I already had a bike. I was already biking to Yeshiva probably at age 10 and 11. So, and I was responsible and like, I'd bike all over the neighborhood, do errands and different things for my parents, siblings, etc. So it was just a normal thing. I was a responsible kid and I, I don't know if I would do that with my kid, but that's just the way it was back right. then. I was thinking more in regards to the convenience store being willing to, yes. to sell you that. That's a good point. Not every store had to, so I had to, had to scout out the ones that actually didn't care to sell the stuff to minors. And I'll just, I'll, I'll just add that in the beginning of like my journey, a lot of the like anger came out, like oozed out the poison toward the, toward this person that showed me the first pornographic image, 
toward the first person who put that stuff in the wall. But today I thank them because without them, I don't know, like they gave me a, a something that sustained me until I was able to get to my healing. Cause I don't know if I would have survived it. I might've meaning all the anger and all the bursting at the seams and so that was kind of like a medicine, it, an outlet every time. Yeah. Every time I felt hurt or in any way from school, home, friends, whatever, anywhere, family, which you were being hurt. Yes, very much so. But every time I started experiencing it, all I would do is go home, get my stuff, act out, and boom, the pain was gone. It was a great pacifier. It was a great pop a pill and you're done. Mm -hmm. How did that progress into internet? So in, in short, the main place it progressed in internet, I did not really have access at home. I had once access to my sister's computer. But I didn't know enough to, at that point, maybe thank God, I didn't know to, enough. Uh, I didn't have enough information about the topic to actually look into it. And until I got the router working and all that, it was like a whole process. And then they were finally coming home. So uh, I didn't have that much time. And the next day she put on a filter. So, and I still tried going past the filter and all that. But it ultimately took off a couple of years later. When I was like 1920 in Israel. Yeah. That's where like my main, the main like craziness fully took over like with internet pornography and like starting to meet up with people like all that Did, were you this entire time like running alone i yeah that's the, that's you the, never met anybody on the yes the yeah that's the thing it was my own secret that i never told anyone about other than this one rabbi when i was like 16 17 and other than that there was no one else in my life that knew a damn thing about this my parents Actually, my, you reminded me, my mother and my sister at one point caught me with the stuff. And that's how I got to that rabbi at the time was like 16, 17. Other than that, my mate, and, and what I did was the next time I made sure not to get caught. I just mm -hmm. hid the material better. So what happened in Israel? So in Israel, I started out, um, I started out slow. I got iPod touch. I would run around the neighborhood for hours getting Wi-Fi and and then I was just like running till 4 a.m. all over. And then I would come home, be fully exhausted, go to sleep and wake up at whatever time I woke up. And the yeshiva I was in, they didn't really tolerate it, but they kind of tolerated it for a while. And the yeshiva tried getting me in touch with this therapist. And I did go and I didn't go. And it was, I was with him consistently for about like a year and a half, probably, before I like really started actually seeking help. Although even at that time, like he tried to help me. He sent me to someone else to do some kind of hypnosis, some kind of like uh, guided imagery, which mm -hmm. was helpful, but really didn't, was helpful maybe with certain things, but it didn't really do, do much to make any dent in me because my main fear was like to be completely cut off from it. And like when this guy, for example, this uh, second uh, person with the guided imagery was telling me, oh, I know guys who have girlfriends and we have deals with them, blah, blah, blah. And like... All that just brought up a lot of fear in me is he's going to cut me off from my supply, so to speak, and I won't be able to act out anymore. And now I'll have to go it alone. And I'm not, I don't want to do that. I don't really want the help. And the idea is, is to replace everything that you're doing with a girlfriend. That's what that idea was? No, the idea, he was just explaining that there were people that were further along, as it were, in the further advanced in this the imagery process yeah in, in the process or, or further gone like than just pornography like they already had like relationships and and stuff like that and they're trying to get them to be on the straight and narrow as it were and he's just saying he has experience with the whole gamut of all these people but i my my constant feeling over there was like i don't want to really give this up but i want to make a good impression as if i do so I was like caught between a rock and a hard place there because I wanted to give it up on one hand and on the other hand, I didn't want to give it up. Right. Yeah, and that's a very common thing. I know for me, I definitely experienced that, the idea of really wanting to stop but not having the capacity to imagine life without it. And that's too scary. Yes. Yeah. How old were you when you began recovery? I was about 22 when I started first like seeking out help. And that was when you met that therapist or that was earlier? That was after I met the therapist. I probably met, I was like 20, 21. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later, I got involved with Guard Your Eyes and 
slowly. I met someone through Guard Your Eyes. I went down and that was my first experience of really getting real with someone. And I sat down and for two hours, I sat in this guy's office in Israel and told him my whole story. Hmm. And he listened and he gave me like a couple of comments at the end. But it was my first time I ever really poured my heart out to someone, heart and soul. What happened that time that allowed for you to be open and honest? different than the other times because this time i was really willing to be done and i really wanted to stop i had a bit earlier a friend that tried helping me stop because i he thought i wanted to because i told him that i wanted to and i kind of did but i had the same issue he, he hooked me up with a therapist who was a little bit bigger he had a little bit of experience of his own struggles but it was bigger than he was able to handle he was my chavusa in yeshiva so he didn't really have much experience in that mm -hmm. field so, and I was like, he was the guy who kept bugging and like desperately, like it started with this. You need a therapist like today. Like, yeah. I texted a few people, see when they get back to me. And like, he was holding his boundaries and I was just like sitting there with a sledgehammer, breaking, breaking down every, every, like every door he closed, I would slam it open with a sledgehammer and say, no, I need in right now. And that's where the codependency acting at is. Yeah. It, that's like one, one, uh, some areas of where it's pulled out mm -hmm. and, and the bottom line was, so he got me this person, but again, this person, they're well-meaning they're a great person. They helped me out in a lot of ways, but they didn't, they again, didn't, uh, they didn't fight it head on like at that time. And I was uh, kind of willing and I was kind of like arrogant about, oh, I have a smartphone, but I'm not going to look at any of this stuff. And like for a few months I didn't. And then. I went back to it and I didn't bother telling him the truth that I had, as it were, relapsed, but I didn't care anymore. I went back to saying, oh, I don't care. And then a little bit later is when I met this, this last therapist, this lay therapist and the guided imagery guy who over there, I was honest, but I didn't really want to stop anymore. I was like, I had taken it to the next level. And I think that part of the reason why I taken it to the next level was that this guy Meaning taking it from just pornography to actually meeting people. Yeah. Is because I made it more real to myself by disclosing to someone other than a therapist, my Chavrusa, like by sharing with him because I was like going nuts and I couldn't. And actually the, the interesting thing is he shared with me some of his struggles, which got me to open up, which was what he kind of planned. He hoped that this would help me and it did. So that when I was ready to actually get the help, it was there for right. me. So there is a relief. I know I, I see that a lot in people's experiences where they have a moment of understanding themselves and finding camaraderie and it sort of, it offers a certain relief and we experience a certain, oh, okay, now that there's other people in this world just like me, I'm going to be okay. And now that I understand myself more, I'm going to be okay. But that doesn't last. Correct. So what was the first nine days of recovery? First nine days of recovery were interesting. I walked into the rooms. I'd gotten a sponsor through Guard Your Eyes, of a guy that was a couple years sober, but whatever. And um, it stayed for a while, but I didn't work for me in the beginning. Maybe it did. I just wasn't patient enough to let it happen. We were reading through some, we were reading through some literature and stuff, but I was still acting out and I couldn't stop and I felt too guilty. And all this, he would just show me love and just say, I love you. Just keep on trying to keep doing this. And I would text him, hey, I'm about to act out. What do I do? And I would try and then I would act out and then I would feel guilty. And then, and then that, and then I found, then I got a, I got another guy that, that was my sponsor for the first while. Can we slow down for a second? I just mm -hmm. want to mention to people, like mm -hmm. those, there are three terms mm -hmm. that I heard you say. One was the sponsor, the rooms and the literature. Okay. So the rooms we're talking about 12 step recovery. Correct? Correct. The second thing is a sponsor, just so anybody doesn't know, a sponsor is somebody who guides you through the 12 steps. And the literature is the literature that you use. There are many different pieces of literature that is created for every specific fellowship on how to do the, fourth, the, the 12 steps. The most basic one and the most commonly used one is the book of Alcoholics Anonymous which is used not just for alcohol, but for other addictions as well. So yeah, I just wanted to give that in case somebody's listening and doesn't know what those terms yeah, are. Yeah. I, yeah. I got carried away. Yeah. Yeah. So I you got a second sponsor. So I got, a, yeah, I got a second sponsor and that guy actually, he told me like, if I, if you call me before you act out, then we're done. If you don't call me before you act out, then we're done. And to me at that point, it was like, Oh, quite cool. So he's going to kind of keep me sober. Mm. Like I'm going to have to call him and whatever. And the, it was an interesting journey. It was like, I was you in mentioned a very... actually looking to that. You made a comment just now, like 
I, I thought that he was going to keep me sober. What does that mean? And what's the problem with that? I guess that means, in other words, that I'm going to have to stay, I'm going to stay accountable to him. So I'm going to force myself to not act out by staying in contact with him and, mm-hmm. and force myself to, oh, I can't do this. because I don't want to lose him. So I'm like kind of relying on him to do for me something that I'm not able to do myself. I'm just taking another human being and saying, you're going to be my boss now. Right. And also I hear fear in there, meaning I'm going to use the fear of losing him as a way to motivate myself to not act out. Correct. And what are the problems with that? The problem with that is, is that a human being is not sustainable. And what if he's not available at four in the morning and that's when I need it or as it happened, actually, what, what happens when that happens? And it did actually get me a little further in the journey where I got like a month of sobriety and then I had some, like a lot of like anger and whatever towards certain people in my life and started coming up and he had, he did some writing on it and was helpful. But then right after I did the writing, I spoke with him and I felt all better. And then 20 minutes later, I acted out. So it didn't really. So I see this, so stage number one is self-knowledge and it gets you, you know, a little bit of relief, but having a sponsor that you can actually rely on, quote unquote, that brings you a little further, but that didn't, wasn't sustainable either. Correct. What happened then? So what happened then was I continued working with him. He agreed to continue working with me even so. And we had gotten quite far and then he'd had his own like struggles and he wasn't able to sponsor me anymore. What does it mean that he, you got far? Oh, I got far means I went through most of the 12 steps with him. We got to like step eight and then he had his own like struggles and he dropped out of the program and he was depressed and he was going through a lot in his own life and I had to find someone else. Mm-hmm. So I found another fellow who was like very passionate about, about recovery and I liked what he had and I... When I what asked did you him, look for? I'm just curious. When, when the third time, what were you looking for of what you found in him? So at that point, I was probably two and a half or three and a half months, so probably around three and a half months sober. So I had a little bit more sense in my mind. It's kind of funny because I'm thinking back, I think it was like two years ago when I bumped into someone. I was chatting with someone on the phone and they asked, they were, were talking about like my first couple of months in the program. And I was like laughing at myself, like hilariously. I'm like, wow, I was so blockheaded back then. I was so like, just... I was in a totally different place. Like I, everything was going okay, but like I was in a totally different place. I forgot, I wanted to mention one thing about that time that was really important. Like my first six months of recovery, I was in Eretz in Yeshiva away from family. And therefore it was very helpful. Like I only, when I came back to America, as you soon here, that's where a lot of other stuff like codependence came into play much more because I interacted with family and other people much more on a daily basis where it really brought up a lot of stuff for me. But like my first uh, six months, I'd like to, I'd like to say I was in like a Petri dish of like my own healing. I didn't necessarily have much from outside influence that were, that was negative. Mm-hmm. It was a very positive environment and very like good memories, although it was like very new and raw. But yeah. So, so what happened was, so this, how did I pick someone? So I don't know. I was like looking around to find someone that I would connect and relate to. And then this guy who's visiting out from Toronto, he was there for a couple of months. He was in Shiva, like our Sameach. He was about Shuva and he was in the program and he visited and he, and, and he was sharing about how God came in and removed his obsession. And I'm like, well, I want that. I want to be like, I was like kind of free, but like still struggling and still like the, the, the way the, especially with those who don't know the program, like the idea is it's a mutual support system where you have the, the meetings and then between the meetings, you stay in touch with each other about whatever happens and you get really close and you share everything about your life with these other people as a way of connecting with them. And it's like a real cool brother and sisterhood, so to speak, of like people who really like trust each other and can be safe and vulnerable with each other. So, so the point, so the point is, so I had those tools and they helped keep me sober and all that. They helped keep me connected. And, but I definitely, when I heard someone say he's free of the obsession in those words, that was my golden ticket. Can you define obsession in this regard? It's a, it's an itch that if you don't scratch, it just feels horrible. And if you scratch, it feels even worse. So like the, the, in other words, the obsession leads me to back to acting out. Because ultimately it's all in my mind, but it does lead me back and it leads me to the edge. And over the edge, I just do the act and, and I just relapsed. 
But at the same time, it's if I don't scratch it, it's very it throws me off balance emotionally, mentally. Right, and that's the most common place where so people who use behaviors or substances to self-medicate, if they're not taking the medication, those are the two options. Either I self-medicate, which means I either take the drug, take the drink, do the behavior, and that's itching it, which means it feels good for a minute and then it starts really hurting even more after that. Shame, guilt, etc. Or feeling that horrible, obsessive thoughts and feelings, right? So those are the only two options for your typical addict who doesn't have a third solution. Correct. So he basically, you meet this guy and he's God removed it, which is, oh, wait. So there's like a third option now. Correct. I like the way you put that. There's a third option. There's an option now of not just going to meetings and relying on fellowship and all the other stuff like prayer, the steps and all the things that all the daily actions that I got to do, but it's relying on, oh, wait, that there's a real way out. There's like a way out where I'm stuck in this hole and someone can actually pull me out of the hole. They, they have, they're giving me the flashlight and they're giving me the map. Detailed map. This is how you get out of the hole. You make this right and this left, and you're out. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And he's basically saying, I'm out. He's saying, I'm out. And like in the famous metaphor they sometimes use in the twelve step rooms, where the addict is stuck in the hole and he's trying to he's trying to get out, but the only way he knows how to get out is by trying to dig deeper. And he digs himself much deeper into the hole. And first, the doctor comes by and gives him pills. A psychiatrist comes by and gives him a session that says, I'll be back next week. And the, the, the religious person comes by and gives him a religious book and he prays with him and he's still stuck in the hole. And then finally the addict that, uh, that had, that's relieved of the obsession in some circles, they call that the recovered addict jumps in the hole with them. And they say, what, what are you doing now? Now we're both here. He's like, no, but I know the way out. I'm going to give me your hand and I'm going to guide you out. And that's how I felt when I bumped into that guy. I felt like he could guide me out. So can you describe the experience of, first of all, what did you do? And what is the experience of stepping into this world where you have, you're free? Okay. That's really cool. So first of all, just to fast forward, that guy, unfortunately didn't end up sticking around, whatever he, I spoke with him more recently and he's okay. He's doing well. He decided to drop out of the 12 step rooms after a while. So I have found someone else. Like first he was relapsing and then afterwards I still wanted to work with him and then I found someone else and there was a whole bunch of back and forth and then in that time I came back to the US and all that. And and then the one point I want to bring up about this guy is he said he has to ask his higher power, which a lot of people use for a generic term for a God or a being that helps keep them sober. And that floored me because I never heard anyone, I've heard a lot of thrown around the rooms, but I've never heard anyone say it in those terms of, I have to ask him if I could sponsor you. And uh, the funny thing is, now that I have the privilege of doing that with people, that's what I do. It's, it makes a lot of sense to me, but it, it helped me first understand that. And where do you get answers from? By sitting in the silence, a lot of times, like the, whatever the muck in my brain filters out, and I'm just able to either see things sometimes very frequently, even today. I'll call a few people who, who I like respect their where they're at in their journey, and I'll ask them, especially people that know me for a while, I'll ask them, like, I'll run my ideas by them. Hey, this is what I, this is what's happening. This is what I'm thinking. I prayed about it and this is what's coming to mind. What do you think about it? And the program also has for this set of four tools, basically like ways to look through a situation to see if it's really like, if it's really the right thing. But sometimes there are, there are things that I'm not even sure about. I don't know which way to go. So and what process did you use to choose to do this podcast? The thought came to mind and I had the time and about to start a new job, but I had the time until the job starts. And I, I just, the thought came to mind and I reached out to my buddy Mish and I said, I'd love to share some hope with the Jewish community. Was there any time where you paused and thought to yourself, is this selfish? Is it not? Sometimes it, sometimes like the thought just comes out of nowhere and I don't necessarily need to sit there it's not like a, a it's not like a dilemma it's more like a beam of light like you should do this and there's no fear around it there's no like there's no discomfort around it of any kind and most times those are things that are directed to me by my higher power that's how i feel i feel like that's and most times in my life i haven't been burned when i did that how long have you been living this way so in short I, right. I started this journey like a couple of years ago, like my first, like I walked in first to the 12 step rooms about six years ago. 
in October of 2015. So it's, yeah, a little over six years. Mm -hmm. And I've been sober from the bottom lines and stuff for a little over three years. And before that, I had like a year and a half. And then I relapsed and learned some stuff along the way. And that's basically what the journey has been for me. How were you able to come back after that relapse? Okay. So we're fast forwarding a little. Yeah. But after the relapse, I basically, I had to face a bunch of things that I wasn't willing to face. Like the way I was dressed was like not really conforming to where I was, which like brings me the whole Yiddishkeit thing. It brought me to like work on Yiddishkeit and be real with myself. Be honest. Like you said, that was one of the things. Yeah. Be, be real to who I am. And there was a lot, there's a lot of fear. And a lot of it also has to do with the codependence, the fear of what other people think of me. I remember being at events and like seeing people just dress casually. And I'm like, I wish I could do that, but I can't be, I can't afford it. It was too expensive of a price for me to pay. In regards to your connection with others, because you need them. Because I need people to see me for who I am, for who I think I am. Or for who I want them to think I am. Mm -hmm. Yes. At what point did you discover that this was codependent? So it, it didn't happen right away. It happened like in 2017. And ultimately that's what got me like sober, sober, like the first time sober where I had a year and a little bit, because what I realized was that I, 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 I'd been like getting really angry and frustrated with a lot of the situations in my life, my mother, my father. A lot, my father's mental illness brought me a lot of shame because he ends up being clumsy and like the Nebuch and people feel bad for me. And it was very embarrassing. And because I put my, took too much responsibility for like my father's actions. And today where I don't do that, I don't take responsibility for what's not mine. Cause that's one line I would use to describe codependence is taking responsibility for what's not mine and not taking responsibility for what really is mine. And when you say mine, you're talking about what other people's response, meaning if somebody else does something, I say, I cause that, I cause them to do, to do that. And yeah. that is something that's undesirable or, or. Yeah. Other people. Yes. For example, other people's actions, other people's um, desires, wants, needs are none of my business or my concern. Like I don't have to, I don't have to actualize it for them. They have to, I have to allow them to have their own journey. When did you know that the obsession was gone? Okay. So that was in the middle of the first stint before I got into the codependence recovery, where I had some months of recovery, some months of some good sobriety. And that's where that started. I was working with a sponsor. We had been through, we had gotten to like step four. And I remember I was like going through my, my first like feeling of something was we were in Toronto and we, it was like. We went in the morning and we came out like toward dusk. We sat for a good couple hours and did a bunch of work. We sat down and the way the program goes in the fourth step, you write out all the people you resent and why you resent them. And the main tool of the program there is not the, is not, is not the who and the why, but finding out what part I play and how to get free of that part. That's really the core of the program. Like part of it is psychological, like the first part of who I did, how it affected me and how I feel about it. But then the real kicker in the program is how to get free of it by taking res full responsibility for the 1% that I play. Right. It doesn't matter that someone else played 99% of the 99% of the parts there. I, I played the 1% and that's what I'm holding on to. And that's, what's like letting me free. So in short, once I walked out of the building with him, it was like dusk time. And I saw vivid color for the first time in my life. And I smiled and I was like, my face was like lit up and I was like, Whoa, I'd seen the world in like different eyes as I, as it, uh, than I'd ever seen before. So that was like the first part of the experience. A couple, maybe a week or two later, I'd been done and I'd been given the grace because I don't know how to do this, but I've been given the grace that once I finished writing out all those resentments and seeing the fears behind it and seeing like what really drives it and like the selfish and dishonest thinking behind all those resentments. I was given the gift of being able to let go of each of the, all those resentments completely for that time. And when I woke up the next morning, I had had an appointment in Manhattan. And the first time ever I experienced not quote unquote feeling triggered or aroused when being around crowds and people pushing on trains and all that. And it wasn't any problem. And I walked out into the streets of Manhattan and I felt like I was a free man for the first time in my life. Like I really felt like 
I could walk here in the streets and not feel compelled to look at anyone or have an interest in objectifying anyone. And that was like when I fully understand what it meant to be free of an obsession. How do you maintain that? The cool thing about it is I don't maintain anything. I maintain, <laughs> I, I do, I do these, I do these daily practices very imperfectly, but I do them as best I could. I try to pray and meditate every day. I try to, you know, go to the meetings, be honest with a sponsor and with my fellows and try to help people wherever I can. Can you break the, all that stuff down? What does prayer look like? Is well, it putting on to fill in prayer, the yeah, I mean, Well, that's today, the last couple of weeks, especially since I got married, that's a big part of my prayer and meditation. When putting on a towels and film and, and davening is, is an experience where I connected that with my own practices of prayer and meditation. So meditation for me largely has been about sitting quietly and learning how to, learning how to quiet the mind, which is again, a gift, like having a quiet mind and quieting the mind. And it, there are a lot of times where my mind is very noisy. Like right before this, I was like kind of scanning my mind. My mind was very noisy. I did a couple of deep breathing exercises, got very lightheaded and then a lot of the noise went away. We're like, my mind right now is clear. And the only thing I'm really focused on is what I'm speaking about, which is an absolute miracle because my, I have ADHD and my mind runs all over the place all the time. So yeah. So the meditation piece is about the, is about the thoughts, clearing out the thoughts and then being able to hear what my true self is telling me, what my higher power is telling me of how to live my day. And the main, my main focus in meditation is not about how my day is going to look. It's about what, what, which kind of person am I bringing into my day? Who am, who am I showing up as at work, at home, with friends, even in the program? Who am, I, who am I showing up as? Right? Am I showing up as the guru who has all the answers? Or am I just showing up as a humble guy who's been given a gift and would love that the new person struggling gets to hear that I have this gift so they can get some hope too? Mm-hmm. So that's about a little bit about prayer and meditation. Prayer for me, for the most part, other than the religious prayers, has really been talking to God in my own words. Like I'll use some, some of the program prayers sometimes to get me started, but the most, my, most of my focus is about learning to have my own internal dialogue with God. That's really what prayer is about and connecting with that. Do you have any concern of people judging you? Yes and no. It still comes up here and there. Most times I'm successful in seeing it for what it is. Just a big, uh, like I had a, a guy in a meeting had a good line once. He said about fear is a mouse with a flashlight hiding under a blanket, looking like a big, like a huge monster. So that's really what it is. I get to see that very often. And I happen to like like these little metaphors and these little analogies because they help me see things in perspective. They help mm -hmm. me like get to the root of what things are. So um, most times I'm able to see that, but there are times it's still, I could say I'm afraid and as long as I can label it. And then but the point is I don't have to worry about, oh, I'm not there yet. I could accept, okay, this is where I'm at. And I know that in certain circumstances, I still need to quote unquote in my own head. Again, the rules in my own head, I'm conforming with the rules in my own head, but um, I'm conforming and it's not really out of choice. Because I'm making a choice, but I'm not really making a choice because I'm allowing other people, so to speak, to dictate things about me. But for the most part, most of that is not present in my life. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that you're willing to share this, on this, have this conversation on the podcast. Correct. If there was a few messages that you would have, what would it be to the, like what you needed when you were younger? based on what you know now, obviously it happened for a reason and you're grateful for that. But what did you need as a youngster? What did you need to hear from the rabbi? What did you need to? So in short, in the last year, I've been getting slowly more in touch with my feelings and that's been a real journey and it's been sometimes challenging and sometimes it's been a blessing to not be in touch with feelings when things are difficult. And it's something that I wish I would have had the tools when I grew up, I kind of say, I wish I do, but I kind of, at the same time, I see the whole thing as when I'm able to see the full picture of, from when I grew up until now and see it all in perspective, I don't ha I, if I were to live it again, I wouldn't choose it to be any different because I see where every piece falls into place. And there are plenty of pieces that I don't see where they still fall into place. And that's the evolving, never ending journey of life and being able to just uh, fully accept this is where I'm at. And these are the things that brought me there. 
be they both positive and negative, they're the two energies that brought me to where I am. Right. So I guess a better question to ask you is, what can you share with somebody who's currently struggling? What can you say to somebody who's beginning their journey and they haven't had a spiritual experience yet? They haven't had the obsession removed. So if someone, well, first I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. The first part I'll answer is to someone who is not sure if they can ever find the help. I hope some part of my story maybe helped you realize that you're not the only one out there struggling and there really is help and there really is a way out of this where this thing doesn't have to plague you on a daily basis. That's the first thing. And seek out and reach help, reach out and seek help. Excuse my words, but <laughs> I can laugh at myself. I don't have to get all flustered about it. I just move on, seek out. There we go. Try again, reach out. And there are definitely people in the community that are able to help you if you're willing. And if you're not willing, you'll get there. It's like what I would have told my 18 year old self was you'll have your own experience. There's nothing more I had to tell my 18 year old self. Do this. Don't do that. You'll have your own experience. That's all I could ever say. And I'm 28 now. So, but, uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say for someone who's uh, maybe trying out paths of recovery, whatever it is, if it's 12 step or something else, you're on your way. And like they say, not all the wanderers are lost. You're on your way, whether you know it or not. And uh, you'll, if you keep, keep trying and you keep uh, persevering, you'll end up finding your way. You'll end up finding a path that works for you. Beautiful. If there's somebody who's listening to this and has questions for you and perhaps seeking recovery, can they reach out to you? Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely leave my email address with you and uh, they'll, they'll be able to get it on the podcast. Awesome. Well, I don't have any further questions, but if you have any last messages that you'd like to share. The, yeah, I would like to, sh like to share a very briefly, like a little bit about what, what it's been like being able to be of help to others. And also a little bit briefly about, I, I wouldn't be able to get into all this right now, but the fact that I got, that I was dating and got married was a really big piece. Mm. That, that yeah, I'd love to hear. I'm sure there were tons of fears around that. Yeah. Please share about that. So in, in regard. While we're doing that, let's just take a moment to like really thank your supportive wife for all the people that are going to get help as a result of this. It's really with her. Yeah. Yeah. My wife well. has been, yeah. So the first thing I want to just say is for me, a real stronghold in recovery has been the idea that I'm able to help someone. When I walked into the rooms, I didn't think that I, when I started this whole journey, I didn't think that I had anything of use to really give someone else. I just needed. And now I'm at a place where I have people that I'm connected with. I have people I'm walking with. Like I'm connected with as in a sponsor, other sober fellows that I have like strong relationships with that I run things by. And then I have people that I'm walking the journey with, like we're kind of in the same wavelength. And then I have people that I'm helping. I need those three at all times in recovery in order to be effective, in order to keep growing in my own life. I, I feel I need all those three. And I still have a passion to continue this. And it's been an interesting so far I'm a little bit challenging with a lot of different things going on and like um, getting started in married life to adjust with all that. So which, which leads me to the second topic, but I still want to make two, three comments on the idea of being a sponsor and like helping others. The main idea for me is that I don't, is the, like the way I heard someone describe it really well is the rule of the, the sp two spiritual rules. One is the rule of caring that I could only care as much as you care. And if you don't care for yourself, I have no right to care for you because then I'm, I'm basically, I'm abusing your right to have your own experience. Can you define that a little bit? Because something doesn't sit well with me, right? If so, I'm, yeah. So I'll, like I, I know somebody, let's say there could be somebody who's not ready to, to get sober. I, I could care for them and express my care in many ways. Number one, right off the bat is I can pray for them. Number two is I can still check in with them every once in a while just to say hi uh, or ask them how they're doing without necessarily sponsoring them. Correct. So, so I was specifically honing in on as a sponsor, my responsibility to someone who I'm sponsoring or called a sponsee, which is if they, if they don't reach out in a few weeks, I might say, hey, how are you doing? But I'll leave it at that and then find someone else to fill the time that they were Right. So it's from the perspective of I, me as somebody who's in recovery, takes spiritual medicine 
And that is by being of service to others. And if the person who I'm giving to or I'm supporting or sponsoring is not actually open to receiving, then I'm on a mission to find somebody else who is open to receiving. Correct. And well, while at the same time, like maintaining the other relationship at whatever level that fellow left it at. The other person left the relationship at the last time we spoke was three months ago. So I'll say, I'll shoot a text. I'll say, hey, how are you doing? Or I'll bump into them. I'll say, by the way, I don't know if like you have someone else that you're working with, but like if we haven't spoken in three months, then I'm not sure if we're working together anymore. Right. So please don't fool yourself to call me your sponsor because we're right. not actually doing sponsor sponsor yeah, yeah, work. And, yeah. In some rooms, they call that a sponsor in name only. Like you, just, you just have them in name, but you're not really doing any work with them. They're not mm -hmm. really in touch with you. Got it. So that that's one facet. The other facet, interesting facet of sponsorship is one of my sponsees today reached out to me about this topic. Of sponsees doing something, and I know it's gonna, I know it's gonna be a, a complete, it's gonna be a dumpster fire. I know it's gonna be a complete failure, and they're they still want to go through with it. And I give them, you know, my experience, and I leave it at that. As in, I give them my experience, and then I tell them it, it has no effect on my life what you do, but it might have an effect on your life. And uh, you know what I mean? Don't come crying to me when you have a mess, or maybe do, do come crying to me, and I'll try to help you again. I'm just not going to assume the full responsibility of that correct because i don't take responsibility for the actions that you do especially when i could say i told you so right yeah so whatever but it's a fine it's a fine line it's not always right. it's also super common for sponsor sponsor relationships for there to be codependence there and in mm -hmm. every addict there is like a little codependent person there or al-anon or that they call it where we need people by the way that's just my personal opinion there were some other points you wanted to make. Yeah, I'll just, I'll comment on that. And then I just want to comment on that part. So that's been a journey for me to not get resentful at sponsees who don't call and this and that and the other, like all, the, all these kind of stuff that come up and regarding to what they need to do and to completely like detach myself from them and say they're who, are they, who they are. And if they don't call an X amount of time, then I'm just going to move on to the next person and not be upset at a sick person trying to get well, who doesn't fully have the tools to reach out and just be compassionate toward them and but it's been a journey but it got to a place where one of one of the people i was sponsoring was starting to sponsor and he was making some bad decisions and who he was taking on as sponsees and i told him listen i think you're wasting your time because i know these people that you're trying to work with and they're not really ready and you're just going to you're just going to be wasting your time and he's i'm cool with it i said okay cool you're gonna have your experience it's fine i, I don't have to be harsh on the guy just because he's trying he's gonna have his experience and he's gonna have to learn the same way I had to learn through my own experiences what to do and what not to do. And I'm still learning. And there's still plenty. The, the cool thing about this whole journey is there's still plenty for me to grow every day. I never feel like I hit a plateau and I'm not growing. So far, I haven't felt that way that I hit a plateau and there's like, where do I go from here? There's mm -hmm. always more. There's always more. There's, mm -hmm. there's deeper levels of understanding, awareness. So in regarding to dating and getting married, it really involved a lot of, I'll try to be as brief as I can. and have another there are other times that i've shared if anyone wants to reach out to me about that as well i could give them the other recordings of where i shared more about this in at length but i are they available online or it's something they're available one of them is available online the other one is like in a google drive that i could send them or okay whatever, but yeah one of them is available online on rico 12 it's meeting number 33 i've recovered now what where I talk about my dating experiences. Okay. Someone wants to find it on Rico 12. So it's a podcast available on most platforms. But in short, they're very, to, to really put it in concise in a couple of sentences. So like I really needed to fully surrender any kind of expectation I had because especially when there's another person involved, I really can't call the shots on my own. And I really can't decide things on my own. And whether or not someone wants to see me again or go here or go there or do this or do that, is completely up to them. And I had to fully understand and embrace that and just be fully okay with it and just let it happen. And whether someone was okay with me being in recovery or not being in recovery and stuff like that came up and how to disclose and, and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot that goes into this. And the bottom line is it's, it's about continuing to work the program and speaking with people who had the experience that are similar because that again, when it comes to a new problem or a new challenge that I haven't had, 
it's in in that regard it's i'm back in the hole i don't know the way out and the person who's been through that has the experience and they can guide me the way out they could so say this is what i did help guide you in regards to your dating and yes many people mm-hmm. before i started the journey i probably called 10 people to hear like a bunch of different perspectives and different ideas and then i just needed to go out and have the experience and trust my higher power that whatever will be and i'll be okay and that's what i did beautiful and yeah and I'll, i want to end with this with the, the, i want to end um I want to thank my wife as well for being part of me with this journey and having her own journey that we're starting out on together and where our two journeys are kind of meeting and like moving along parallel lines hand in hand. And it's really cool to be able to have a partner that's a supporter and admirer and respect and all the, from what I could see so far. And um really grateful to God and I'm grateful to all the people that are involved in making this podcast a reality and a shamos and uh, and I'm grateful to every single person who listens to this because maybe one day you'll hear of someone who might need help and you might and maybe I might be the channel that they'll be able to get help through so thanks yeah on behalf of all of us and the shamos and the community we thank you very much Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at neshamas.org. We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Neshamas podcast. This is Moshe Khanen wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.